Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's jump right into Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 4. The door hit them as they made their way toward the front of the house in the high, narrow hall. The first indication of how it affected them was Gracie wrinkling her pert nose and sniffing. Phew! exclaimed Henny. What is it? asked Joey. He held his nose and breathed through his mouth so he wouldn't get the full effect. They knew, even then, what it was, though no one wanted to put it into words. It became stronger as they walked, fearfully, with George courageously in the, in the lead, to the front hall, which widened here before glazed glass double doors. A stairway with a mahogany railing led upward, and in front of this, on the worn oriental rug, lay the source of what they smelled. The old man lay just within the door, sprawled on his face which was turned sideways, lying there quietly, with his glasses still on, and behind them his eyes open and more faded than ever. One arm was half under his chest, holding it, and his left leg was partially drawn up as though convulsively trying to take a graceful position. The children stopped and stared in awe. They were fearful of approaching closer, but they knew they had to. They edged forward, then stopped again a few feet away, with Joey hanging back. In a whisper, Henny asked, "'Is he?' No one replied for a moment. They knew the answer well now. They realized the condition here, the presence of death. It is a thing like no other. No past experience is necessary to feel it when it is there so definitely.' One of them had, only one of them had ever seen human death before, but the others recognized it for what it was without question. Speaking in a barely audible voice, Paul said, I saw my grandmother in her coffin. I wasn't supposed to, but I sneaked in when nobody was looking and saw her. She was just like that, except her eyes were closed. They closed their eyes. Gracie made a moaning sound. She wailed. I've never seen anybody dead before. Henny gulped. Me neither. From Joey came a gagging sound. It's awful, Gracie said in a whisper. They stared frozen at the sight and smell. George said in a low voice, If he's like that, I guess he's... He's... But we got to be sure. How can you? asked Henny. George swallowed. If he's cold... Then, you mean you're going to touch him? asked Paul. Somebody'd better. You, then. You're the leader. You're the president. George gulped. Clearly, it was his mandate. He closed his eyes, then opened them. He took a deep breath and held it. He edged forward. He hesitated, leaned down, waited again, then put out a hand. His finger went slowly to the cheek of the old man, approaching as though in a slow-motion film. When it, was the, when it was within a few inches of the flesh, it darted quickly in and out like a snake striking. George leaped back, let out his breath in a burst, and reported hoarsely, It's cold. Gracie looked at him as though he had gone through a great test and come out triumphantly. She pressed her lips together. She strode forward, slowed, then took a final definite step. She reached down and, without hesitation, but not lingering, touched the old man's cheek. She came back, joining the others. She didn't say anything, but she looked at George as if to corroborate him. 
Henny lifted his right foot and took only a half step forward before he decided against it and brought his foot back. Paul made no move. His face was pale. Joey let go of his nose and made a retching noise. George shouted to him, Don't do it! Joey didn't, but he whirled and ran back down the hall in the direction from which they had come. In the horror and excitement, none of them thought to leave by the front door, only a few feet away. Joey raced ahead down the cellar stairs with the others tumbling after him. Henny misstepped and nearly fell and was caught by Paul. When they reached Joey, he was standing on the box trying vainly to climb up into the cellar window, holding it above his head and not succeeding. They held the window for him and boosted him up and out. The others followed with George last as befitted a leader. When they were all outside, they raced back to the clubhouse. Here they ran in and shut the door and left it shut, this time not minding how dark it was. With only a little light filtering through the cracks of their construction, they sat on their box chairs. The thing over in the old house was shut out. They were safe in here. Henny whispered, "'What do we do now?' They waited for their leader to answer, but he said only, "'I don't know.' "'We'd better tell somebody,' Gracie said. "'Who first? asked Paul. "'Our mothers,' said Joey. "'They're home.' George spoke again. Evidently he had been thinking more than they believed he had. "'I don't know,' he repeated. "'It's the same as before. "'If we tell them and they come here, "'maybe it'd be the end of the clubhouse. "'Maybe they'll make us give it up.' Paul adopted his reasoning. "'They haven't asked much about it, "'and nobody's come to see it. "'Maybe George is right.' "'I know,' said Gracie. "'I know just the thing.' "'They turned to her in the faint light. "'She announced, "'We'll, t we'll still tell Mr. McGill. "'He's the police. "'He's the one who'd be told anyway. "'It's the same thing as our mother's, only better.' "'That's right,' said Henny. "'That's the thing. "'Except he won't come around for a while,' "'George pointed out. "'What time you got now?' "'Gracie asked Paul. Paul looked at his watch, but there wasn't enough light to clearly discern the dial, which was not luminous, so he got up and went to the door, opened it a crack, looked quickly at his watch, closed the door, and came back. It's a quarter after three. The time shocked them. When they started out for the old man's house, it had been a few minutes before three. They could barely believe that less than twenty minutes had passed. It seemed like hours, during which momentous events had taken place. "'You sure it's only that time?' asked Henny. "'Your watch must be stopped,' said Gracie. Paul held it to his ear. "'No, it's running.' George pronounced, "'We'll wait for Mr. McGill just the same. "'It won't be too long.' "'We'd better watch for him,' suggested Paul. "'In the dark, George could be sensed "'considering how this should be done. "'Joey, you go out and sit on the curb and wait for him.' "'Me? I don't want to go out there.' "'You go. Why me? Why not one of you?' "'Because we're officers and we got to consider things. "'Now you go ahead and watch for him. "'I don't want to have to tell him that. "'You don't have to tell him anything except to come here. "'And if anybody else comes along, don't tell them anything. "'Not anything, you hear?' "'Joey didn't move until George got up and opened the door and instructed, "'Now go ahead.' "'Grumbling, Joey left his chair and went out to the road.' George left the door open now. They saw Joey arrive at his post, slowly and reluctantly, with several backward glances. He stood for a moment at the curb, and then sat down with his back toward them. 
George returned to the president's chair and occupied it. The officers sat, but they didn't have anything to consider or say. They waited nervously for Mr. McGill's police car to appear. From time to time, Joey turned and looked at the clubhouse with an unhappy expression on his small face until he turned back and continued to watch. Several cars came along and passed. They thought one was going to stop when its occupants saw Joey, but it only slowed down and then went on. It was good that there was little traffic in dead-end Buckingham Hills. It seemed a long time before Mr. McGill appeared. When he did, Joey jumped up and waved his arms at him frantically. The police car came to a stop in front of him. Joey said something, Mr. McGill said something back, and then he and Joey were coming toward the clubhouse. The officers rose and went out to greet him, though without enthusiasm. Mr. McGill looked at the gray faces of the children and asked, "'What's this? Joey says there's something the matter, but won't say what. What's going on?' They waited for George to speak. Even he couldn't bring himself to tell about it. "'You'd better come over to Mr. Wesley's house.' Mr. McGill's head turned to look at the old man's house. Turning back to the children, he asked, "'What's there?' "'Well,' said George, "'he's in there.' "'In his house?' Mr. McGill regarded them. You broke your promise? You've been over there? We had to, Gracie explained. We didn't want to, but we had to. Mr. McGill regarded them anew. What do you mean you had to? What's wrong? You'd better go over there, Paul advised. Mr. McGill gave them all a searching glance and then turned and started for the house. The children, after a moment, followed. They walked closely together, as if for protection like a small school of fish. They stood outside while Mr. McGill found a safe but precarious way up the rotting steps and across the sagging broken porch. They waited while he opened one side of the frosted glass doors, which was unlocked, and went in. He didn't stay long. When he came out, a serious expression was on his puffy face, and he didn't seem to breathe well. He looked at the children standing on the ground at the foot of the steps and found his way down to them again. He asked them, "'You went in there?' They explained how they thought something was wrong and that they ought to investigate. "'Say,' Mr. McGill approved, "'you did right, but don't go in again while I'm putting in my call.' He could count on that. They didn't even want to stay right there alone. They knew Mr. McGill had a two-way radio in his patrol car, and they wanted to hear what he said on it, so they went with him and stood nearby, listening. He didn't get in the car, but reached in to turn on something, and then pulled the microphone out of the car on its wire and made his report. It sounded just like TV, only it was real. Mr. McGill put his microphone back in his car. Now you come back with me outside the house. We'd better stay there, and I'll ask you some questions until the others get there. In front of the house, again, Mr. McGill took out his official notebook and a ballpoint pen and began asking them questions about how long it had been since they saw Mr. Wesley alive, what time they went in the house, how they went, and what they had done after they got in. When one gave an answer, he asked, the others, he asked the others if they agreed, and mostly said they did. He put all their replies down in his notebook, and it was very official and felt exciting and important. Then, in the distance, sirens began to be heard, two of them, 
an ambulance and a second police car with three men in it arrived curving around the streets of Buckingham Hills and coming to a stop out in front of the old house. After that, there was a good deal of confusion lasting until well into the evening, almost to dark. The people of Buckingham Hills, including the mothers of the five musketeers, and later their fathers when they came home from work, appeared and stood in groups or visited each other in their houses and wanted to know everything that had happened and about the children discovering the old man dead. It was good luck that things concentrated in front of Mr. Wesley's house, and the clubhouse was mostly overlooked in all that went on. Not a great deal of attention was paid to it, especially when Mr. Wesley, covered by a sheet, was carried out of his house in a long basket and put in the ambulance and taken away. The children felt sorry for him when they saw this. End of Segment 4